right, everybody. Welcome to Project Herpetoculture Podcast. This is episode 56. And I'm your host, Roy Arthur Blodgett, joined, as always, by the dashing, charismatic, and handsome Philip Leitz of Arids Only. And um, yeah, we've got an excellent show today. I'm really excited for this conversation. We have an excellent guest. And um, before we get into it, we're going to go through our standard housekeeping and... um, First, I want to give a shout out to Charlie, who edits our audio and um, helps us out in all, all that realm. It's much appreciated. And um, yeah, I also want to give a shout out to Dylan and the Animals at Home podcast for hosting us. Um, it's a great fit to be on this network, the GOAT, as Phil says. And um, yeah, and of course, I want to talk about our sponsors. So we have custom reptile habitats and they are makers of really premium high quality reptile habitats. Um, and they also have a whole product line with other stuff like universal rocks products and some other decor products, substrates, things like that. So if you're in the market for any of that and you're looking to make a purchase, if you do so through the link in our bio or description, uh, we'll receive a small commission at no additional cost to you. And that really helps us keep the lights on here. Uh, we also have cold-blooded caffeine and they're roasters of um, really nice quality coffee from all over the world. And what's really cool about them is that they donate a small percentage of the proceeds from each bag of coffee sold to conservation in those coffee growing regions where you also find a lot of really amazing herpetovana. So check them out if you're interested in coffee. We have a private label with them, the Project Herpetoculture, and it's a single origin from Rwanda that's really delicious, but they have a whole bunch of different coffees for all different kinds of tastes. And um, if you use the code Project Herp, you'll receive 10% off your order there. And um, lastly, we have Fairy Tale Dragons. That's uh, Heather Moy and Ron St. Pierre, true legends of herpetoculture, and they're doing all kinds of amazing stuff with bearded dragons, um, some of the crown giant anoles, and um, they've also got some new projects in the works that uh, are sure to be pretty amazing. So keep an eye on what they're doing. And if you're in the market for any uh, bearded dragons, uh, look no further than fairy tale. Oh, so yeah. yeah. And then the last thing, you know, we have a Patreon for anyone who's interested in subscribing to support the show directly. We always welcome that. It really helps out um, with our upgrades here. And we've got some really cool things coming down the pipeline and um, yeah, still kind of finalizing some details, but hopefully we'll have some announcements soon. And that's all thanks to the support of our listeners. So yeah, with all that said, I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, um, joining us all the way from Germany, and that's Jonas Kyle. Thanks so much for joining us, Jonas. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy you're here too. So I guess just to begin, I'd love to hear a little bit about just like your your background in herpetoculture. How did you get started? You know, how old were you? When did how did it how did it all begin for you? So um I have to go way back. So um I it started as a child, to be honest. Like I always had like I was always drawn to animals and nature and also plants and um but especially animals. Um the part of it being specifically about reptiles came a bit later in life, I think. But um I still like all kinds of animals really, but, um, um, so I remember going to zoos with my parents and, um, and, um, our first pets were like, um, we had, um, like little baby turtles, 
you know, it was mid nineties and mm -hmm. um, our parents thought it was a great idea to give me and my brother each a little baby turtle <laughs> as like a, like a, like a Christmas present, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and it was like a, a map turtle and a slider turtle. Right. And each like, like very tiny. And um, I think, even today, and especially back then, people had this um, conception of like, oh, it's such a small turtle, it's going to stay small, you know, but oh, yeah. with slider turtles, that's obviously not uh, not really the case. But anyway, that's, looking back, these were my first reptiles. Like, um, I don't know, I don't know if, I, if the slider turtle was mine or the map turtle, I, it doesn't matter. Like, it, these were yeah. our turtles, so um, we had them set up in a little aquarium and like, after a very short while, we had to set them up in a bigger tank and so on. And um, yeah, so um, then we also had a, a Bucci parakeet. Is that? Yeah, like yeah. a little bird. Yeah, we, yeah, we yeah. had those. So and um, I tried to remember, like nobody in my in my family or um, nobody had dogs or cats, like partly because um, I was allergic to cat hair, actually. Mm. Um, that kind of like went away as I got older, but, um, as a child, I was, um, really allergic to that. And, and also like, um, uh, so my grandma had one of these butchy parakeets and my mother used to have an aquarium she, when she was small. So, um, it was kind of not like super big, but a little bit kind of in the family. Right. So, um, yeah. especially my mother kind of supported that. And when we, we were like, um, I think six or seven years old, me and my brother got like, a little extra aquarium where we had like little aquatic snails and some guppies and stuff like that. So that's how the, the whole pet keeping started and it kind of evolved from there. So, um, so as I said, the, the turtles were the first, um, reptiles really. And then, um, you know, um, my family and, and my, my, my grandmother, especially, they knew I was so into animals. They, but they couldn't go to the zoo every weekend, you know, like that wasn't, mm -hmm. that wasn't really possible. And, and, uh, and sometimes when I visited her, she just took me to the pet shop to see some cool animals, you know, and, um, I kind of had a phobia of rodents. Like I don't like rats or mice. That's something that got better as well. Like I don't freak out when I see them anymore, but back then I was like, ugh get away with that stuff you know and yeah, I was really yeah. Drawn to, yeah it, it just wasn't for me i don't know like now it's, yeah. it's okay but um yeah it's just these are not my my kind of animals for some reason yeah in the beginning i like all kind of animals um i will exclude rats yeah out of that <laughs> so mm -hmm. so but then we went to the pet shop just to see what's going on and like um and they had these little geckos and um i immediately fell in love with them so uh Again, that was back, back in the nineties, right? So they had like this bear tank with like one branch and they had like mm -hmm. a little green gecko sitting on it. And the label said house gecko, five, um, what was it back then? Yeah. Mark. Yeah. Five yeah. euros or something, five bucks. Yeah. And I was like, wow, such a beautiful gecko and look at all this coloring and stuff. And like for five bucks, it's actually affordable, you know? Yeah. Um, and I started fantasizing like, oh, I want to keep one of these and, um, then we went back there another day and um, I asked the shop owner, like, oh, what do I need to keep one of these? And he's like, what kind of gecko? And I'm like, this one this green one. He's like, oh, that's not a house gecko. That's a day gecko. And it's much more expensive. And I'm like, mm, okay, like, <laughs> I guess I have to put that on the side, you know? And I was like, I don't know, seven or something. And, um, but that was like the first time where the idea of having like an, like a terrarium started evolving in my mind. Right. So, um, 
what I also did as a child, um, I, I, I read a lot, you know, mm. so I loved reading like animal books, obviously. Um, I was really into horror stories and, um, but I could, I, I read a lot of books and, um, especially actually, yeah, about animals. And then, um, uh, any reptile book I could get, I, I, I could get my hands on, I would read. And then you start fantasizing, oh, that would be a cool species to keep one day, but you're still a child, right? So, um, right, it yeah. didn't really materialize, um, until I was, um, nine years old. I got, um, I got a green and all. Yeah. Nice. In like, a like a really small tank. It was like, looking back, it was like way too small, but, um, like a small tank. And it was the first time, um, I set up an, uh, I set up a terrarium, like whatever I, I read in the books, I tried to, to implement there. But looking back, it was like still, uh, there was like one branch, one piece of cork bark, just like maybe one inch of soil, you know, like, yeah. uh, and a fake plant. So that was it. <laughs> That's yes. what I could come up with as a, as a nine year old. But, um, as you know, green and O's are quite adaptable. They're quite robust, I would say. So, um, mm -hmm. That, that was that was okay for a while and then I kind of wanted to have a second one so um went to another store bought a second one put them in put them in there and the funny thing was um I actually thought the first one that I got was a female and the second one was a male for, for some reason I think the shop owners told me and then one day I come back from school and I see the mating and it's the other way around like ah. I quickly realized that that I was wrong, so I had to come up with new names for them, you know. Because, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so that was fun. I was like ten years old at the time, and I had these green knolls. Wow. And um, still to this day, I don't keep a knolls today, but I would consider myself an anol guy because that's how I started, and it's, mm -hmm. I still think they're really interesting. Like the little color change, the do lab, the all the behaviors that they show. Right. So, um, that was really cool. And, um, obviously when you keep, um, insectivorous lizards, um, you also have to deal with insects. Right. Yeah. And, um, you have to kind of tell your parents like, Hey, that's, that's, that's what we need. We need to have this little box of crickets here or some mealworms or whatever. And, um, I, <laughs> this is strange, but I remember being really fascinated watching the crickets eat. Like, um, I read in all the terrarium books, like, oh, you got to gut load them. Like back then they didn't call yeah. it gut loading. They just said like, um, feed them vegetables and fruit. Um, yeah. and then I was like really fascinated, um, putting a piece of fruit in there and watching the crickets eat and like thinking, um, oh, my lizard's going to eat that cricket. It's going to be so healthy. You know what I mean? Like yeah. <laughs> really rich imagination in my mind. And I, yeah. And it's funny, like I reflected on this, like, um, I still do to a degree, but, uh, back then it was, it was much more like, um, and it was always kind of nature related. Like I remember sitting at my, at my grandmother's place and she had like this huge ficus tree and I couldn't stop looking at this tree. I thought it was like so nice. It was just a regular ficus tree. And I kept looking at this tree and I thought like, oh, it'd be so cool if there was a chameleon in there or something. So I had like a really rich imagination. Um, so, and it was always kind of focused on animals and that's, mm -hmm. that's one of the things why I do this, I guess, because like to have like this creative outlet in a way, right. To, to yeah, think of, of something and it actually create it. Right. So, yeah, of um, yeah, if we, if we continue chronologically, um, I was like 10, 11 years old with the green and and they actually laid one egg, but it was, um, 
the, the, the hatchling never hatched. And then at some point mm-hmm. I opened the egg and it was a fully developed hatchling, but it couldn't, couldn't uh-huh. um, get out of the egg or something. Yeah. That was kind of sad, but, um, and they never laid an egg again. I'm not sure what it was, but, um, yeah, again, back then there was not the best UV technology with the lights. Right. Um, right. Yeah, of course it was 20 years ago. So, um, yeah. And, and, yeah, I was still a child, and like the most expensive lights, I I I, I couldn't afford really, and I couldn't ask my mm. my parents for a hundred dollar light, you know. So uh, yeah, back then it was not really a possibility. And I had to had to work with what I could. I think we had like a regular um, what's it called um, like an aquarium bulb or like a terrarium mm. bulb, like this long bulb and like a heat lamp. That was the yeah. tiny little bit of UVB maybe, but not the best technology in something that we have today. So. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, um, yeah. So I, I had these uh, green and alls for quite a while. So I looked up the lifespan of those, and it's usually around seven years. And I think I had them for yeah, a solid seven years. So pretty much all their oh, yeah. their life there. Yeah, I got them when they were really small, and um, of course you you um, learn as you as you do this, right? Like you have this one pair of lizards, and they kind of become your uh, part of your life, right? So you watch them, um, watch their behaviors and how the male like um, does push-ups and does the the, the bobbing with his head and uh, shows his julep and something. And then there's times where they kind of hide, you know. So the, yeah. the green and all, they actually go to. For me, they always went into like a like a deep hibernation, I would say, or brumation. What's the right word? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brumation, hibernation, yeah, either works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, I remember from November till March, they would not eat. And sometimes I wouldn't see them in my room. Like uh, it was like room temperature, but they would not eat. And sometimes they would dig in the ground. So um, of course, when I was very young, I would be um, concerned. But um, later on, I just realized, hey, it's winter time. They just kind of they just kind of chill out, you know. Um, and that kind of teaches you to to kind of um relax as a keeper sometimes right like once there's a behavior change it does not always mean something bad it could be a seasonal thing right so i learned that as a child so um yeah that that was kind of kind of cool that i can now um use um in my keeping of a bronia because they do weird stuff sometimes too and now i usually just kind of kind of see and observe and um yeah Today, like uh, fast forward to today, if I see an abronia, my male abronia, Mixteca, sometimes I don't see him for two or three months. Wow. Just, just hiding away, yeah. yeah. Maybe in those three months, he pokes his, his head out the cork tube once or twice and I try to feed and sometimes it works. But I, yeah, there was times where I didn't see him for like a solid two or three months. And even with the green and alls, but also with the abronia that are really rare, right? So you, you, could get worried like what's going on is this oh, animal yeah, still alive right but um i think i learned that early on that hey these reptiles have like a, a seasonality where they kind of uh, chill so i have to chill too so i just uh, gotta watch and observe and even then like um if something happens um i don't know i don't know how to describe it but um um if i didn't see the animal for two weeks and then i find out it's dead like what am i gonna do you know, yeah. If yeah. I see it being sick for like a long time, then I can do something, right? But it's it's just hiding for a while, and then I found it like, oh, then it's too late, essentially. But I had that multiple times where lizards were hiding for weeks and months, and uh, 
they came out super healthy. So um, I kind of went off rails yeah. there a bit. <laughs> no, no, um, it's good. I mean, that kind of like brings to mind for me, just like, like there's something about like, especially when you're younger, I think it can be really easy to get like super stressed with, about your animals and like if they're doing okay and i remember i remember being like a like a yeah in my like you know being 10 or 11 or 12 or something and then into my like early teenage years keeping herps and getting super stressed out sometimes about things and i remember talking to like a more senior keeper at one point and he was just kind of like getting stressed out is the worst thing you can do for your animals he's like you just gotta relax <laughs> and i remember that like like oh yeah that's actually that's actually really true. And I, I, I still feel like there's something about that that is, that's really instructive for me with herbiculture of like, like I try to just really not, not allow myself to get, um, get stressed out with what's going on and just try and trust the animals and trust the process a lot more. And I feel like that's served really well over time, but. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I'm going to echo that, man. The, you know, this time of, of year in particular, like fall, that's when everybody here or a huge number of the animals here start to tank down for the winter. Yeah. I forget it. I'm going to go hide. And man, it takes a lot of um, like cognitive effort to remind yourself like, no, 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 this is, this is what they're supposed to do. This is totally normal. Let them go. Mm -hmm. Try to fight it. And it, it takes a long time. You know, you, you, you come up in, in, in herpetoculture kind of, you're you're training yourself to look for two things the signs of a healthy growing animal and the signs of a sick animal and right you know the weird thing is is it's not a, a binary it's not like an either or you know you can mm -hmm. it's more of like a venn diagram there are times in which the behaviors of a healthy animal can overlap with the behaviors of a sick animal or a stressed animal and there are times in which the behaviors of a very healthy or I mean, excuse me, a very sick animal or an animal that's not doing well or not happy where it is can also overlap with a healthy animal, right? Mm -hmm. in, the, in the sense that like, we normally think about an animal as, you know, if they're coming out and they're active and they're going to the bathroom and they're eating, they're happy. They must be doing well. And if they're mm -hmm. not out, they're not active, they're not eating, well, something must be wrong. It's like, well, mm -hmm. a healthy animal might not come out, might not eat, might not be active. And that's- right fine right that's totally fine there are days when i don't want to come out and i just want to stay at home <laughs> yeah. and if i didn't have some other obligation driving me out like work or whatever it were the animals or whatever it is there would be whole days where i would just stay at home and say ah forget it i'm not coming out at all and it and it it's really challenging you know and and what you said roy makes a lot of sense and is is kind of like the thing that i try to remind people you know to just trust Trust the animal's doing fine, you know, trust mm -hmm. the animal. They really know in most cases, they know what's good for them. And the signs of, of ill health tend to be a little bit more pointed. It's not just not eating. It's not just not coming out and not being active. It's usually that stuff combined with other things like mm -hmm. losing weight, less, you know, like certain kinds of lethargy, right? It's one thing if an animal stays in its hide, for the whole day. It's another thing if an animal's like trying to come out and trying yeah. to its normal behavior, but can't because, or like seems totally. like struggling to do so. And, and that's like oh, a, yeah. an amount of nuance that I think is, is, is lost on, on 
newer keepers and not for any fault of theirs it's well-intentioned right but right uh, something that it's it's kind of hard to elaborate on because we're used to getting this in a sound bite or in a small snippet of a care guide it's like here are the problems here are the things to look for right exactly exactly and yeah. uh, nobody tells you that it's perfectly normal for a lot of animals to kind of slow down and then fall in winter right so mm -hmm. um And um, especially, yeah, as you said, when you're a child uh, or if you're just an inexperienced keeper of any age, you could like mm -hmm. uh, kind of panic because you read all the care guides and none of these care guides said, oh, they uh, they will disappear for, for days and mm -hmm. weeks sometimes and still be fine. The care guides yeah. don't say that. They tell you the humidity gradient, the temperature gradient, what kind of food to use, but they, they fail to mention like those behavioral um, details, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I totally. get it. I mean, it's, it, it's complicated. It's not something that you can give people immediately. It's not like, here's a simple answer to all of your questions, right? Like oh. nothing, nothing is like that. It's hard. You know, it takes a certain amount of experience and time with a given species to say, okay, this is totally normal behavior for this animal for this time of year or, right. Hey, like, You know, like uh, even something as simple as like metabolic, just like metabolic rate, right? Which it's not, I don't mean that literally. I'm not sitting there thinking about like the metabolic capacity of my animals. But like, for example, a Euromastix and a butterfly agama, right? Sort of oh, yeah. similar in a lot of ways and evolutionarily speaking, and they have some sort of common ancestors and whatnot. But like a Euromastix is a little more metabolic, metabolically similar to a tortoise where like, yeah. That thing can go for a long time with, you know, my euros don't need to eat every day at all. And mm -hmm, they can't right. have a very high burn rate. Whereas like a butterfly agama, they're much higher burn rate. They like, they need a lot more regular food and they could still go a while without eating, but it's like, you know, the, the, you can kind of have that stuff in your mind is like, well, really how important is it that they eat right now? Like, it's not a big, you know, it's not going to be a big deal. If this, if it's a desert animal, it's very likely that it evolved to have some time without food and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Of course, not the end of the world. If it's a, if it's a predatory animal, it's very likely that it evolved to have a long time without food. And that's totally normal. If it's something more herbivorous, maybe they might eat more frequently. Maybe not. You know, I mean, there's, there's so many factors there. And it's really, really hard to give that information to people who need, you know, especially when they're first starting, they need something more simple and something more straightforward and something more, um, you know, like a little bit more easily digestible, you know? Yeah. And, it, mm -hmm. and it's really difficult sometimes when you, re you receive uh, inquiries from people who are saying like, hey, I understand that what you're telling me is that this is normal, but everything in my instincts is telling me something's wrong. And you have to be like, your instincts are wrong. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's really difficult. It's the same thing. You know, I know I say this all the time, but it's the same thing with jujitsu, you know, like brand new white belts don't have any idea what is wrong in what they're doing. They don't know when something's a mistake. And so you tell them like, look, just use your best judgment when they're, when they're first learning how to roll. You do what you can mm -hmm. to give them a vocabulary. You do it, or if you're first boxing, it's like, you know, you first, you're, you do what you can to give somebody a vocabulary about like, have your guard up, keep your chin tucked, right? Don't, like move around, don't stand stiff as a board, little stuff like this. Yeah. It doesn't come naturally, right? It sounds no. <laughs> uh, counterintuitive to the average person, but 
that's because your your intuitions early on are totally uninformed and nonsensical. You don't know what you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what your intuitions ought to be. So in some ways, you know, you you really do have to have like you have to remain as open minded as you possibly can in something like totally. this. Well, yeah, totally. It's like, I don't know. I used to, like, I used to have a heavy bag set up in like the lower level of the home that I lived in for a long time. And people would always want to, like, they would come into my place and they would see the heavy bag and they'd be like, Oh, can I get your heavy bag? And like, you know, and I'd be like, um, well, first I have to teach you how to stand, <laughs> you know, like, and I have to like wrap your hands because they think that oh, they're yeah. just going to go up and hit hit this 150 pound heavy bag as hard as they can. And they think it's going to be fine. And I'm like, you're going to break your hand immediately. Yeah. You know, it's like, because yeah. most people just have no idea what that is. And I feel like it's the same, the same thing, you know, with herpetoculture, there's so many things that's like, well, like we actually need to go way, 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 way back. And like get some understanding of some like fundamental concepts before we can even really, communicate properly about this stuff a lot of the time right yeah. but the good thing is um oh i'm sorry go ahead no 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 go, no go no the good thing is i think when you when you buy an animal from from an actual breeder like like us yeah. three right we, we both breed yeah. um, certain type of, types of animals we can give that to the new person like totally. i can go on a phone call or whatever and tell them like hey look people ask me how much do you feed your bronia or what temperatures do this ferrodactylus need and i'm like uh I can give you the rough parameters, but you kind of have to go by feel a lot of times, you know? So, yeah. and it's hard to explain if I tell them that, like, what do you mean? Like what temperature and like how many times a week should I feed them? And I'm like, Hey, if the animal looks fat, then feed a bit less or let it fast for a mm-hmm. week. And um, if the animal looks uh, skinny, then uh, maybe add another prey item, you know? So yeah, you know, it's just feeling. Yeah, so and, Mm. You you just said the you just hit on it right there like you know uh, it's more of a feeling. I mean that's yeah. that, there's so much. I, I feel like this is a a refrain I've heard from so many people who who work with other living creatures. It's like a lot of what you do is a feel. Like you just kind of feel mm. like oh yeah, this seems like the right thing to do. You know, yep. and I and I totally get it. It's like uh, we're primates we're like looking for a reason to you know it's like we're thinking about our animals as babies right it's like this is our right. this is our baby this is our we're this this thing is in our care and so like if you had a little baby person that wasn't eating wasn't going to the bathroom wasn't doing anything you'd be like oh shit something's wrong with this little human right but yeah. it's not a human right like you you it's it's like a um this is one of those areas in which anthropomorph anthropomorphizing your animals kind of goes the wrong direction. Right. And there are ways you can go in the other direction too. You, you can allow your animal the space and flexibility to express itself, but it it sometimes takes a lot of time to, to like really internalize that and not project all the things that you think you should be seeing onto the animal you're keeping, you know, it's really, mm-hmm. but developing the thing that you just talked about, Jonas, the, the feeling that this is the right thing to do. That's hard. That's, that's, yeah. a hard, you know, it's something I've been thinking a lot here. Cause I, I have, I have um, an employee now and I've been trying to, you know, I'll give him a task. I'll say, Hey, can you don't, don't feed any of the adult euros today. And he'll be like, why? And I'll be like, I don't know. <laughs> it's, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. It's yeah. just like, they don't need food today. I know they don't. I can't tell you why. I can't say this is exactly mm-hmm. why. I can give you like 25 different reasons 
and it's not going to kill him. You know, like it's, yeah. it's, it's right. good for him. Throw a little bit of chaos in there. You know, I mean, you mentioned gut loading, right? Just a, a, mm-hmm. at the beginning, oh. talking about gut loading, right? And and I like I remember reading a bearded dragon book when I was in high school and first learning the term gut loading and being like, whoa. And I was captivated by it. I was like, right. oh, this is the thing I've got to do all the time. Like I must do this. This is a requirement. If my animals ever get a substandard feeder, I'm a loser, but, but also that's not fair. Like that's, that's a, that's, yeah. that's not a reasonable expectation in any way, shape or form. You know, I mean, we know uh, that for many predators, a solid percentage of their duty as a member of the natural web of, <laughs> of life is to take out stuff that's not doing well and might be sick, injured, old, whatever. Mm. And it's mm. like, if, if, if all you're giving your animal is like the most jacked, juiced up feeder insects or feeder animals they're ever going right. to you're, 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 you're missing an opportunity for adding in another element of chaos. Like, okay. Right. You know, maybe I'm going to give my animal one feeder that's like the most jacked, like steroid induced feeder imaginable. And then for four days, I don't give it any food. And then I give it five food items that are like kind of subpar, slightly mm-hmm. not, not, not put together. Maybe they're like crickets at the last end of their last leg of their life or whatever it may be. And, <laughs> and I'm not saying to give the animal garbage, obviously, but it's right. like you, you, the expectation that they're going to be eating the very best thing all the time is completely unrealistic. And, uh, you know, and it, it might be a contributing factor to obesity in captive captive reptiles, right? Like it could be at least something, um, maybe not a huge one, but I'm just saying like it, you don't have to give them a perfect food item constantly. It's okay. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, the thing is though, I'm kind of conflicted on that because, um, I was going to talk about gut load, gut loading because I'm really big on gut loading. I have like my own philosophy around it, but, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I agree with what you say because, um, if we think about what we try to put in our feeder insects and then add, um, a multivitamin on top of it, like how much nutrients are there? Like, you know, the, as you said, like, it's going to be like a roided up, uh, dubia roach and like the, the mm-hmm. super roach there. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's going to have way more nutrients, I assume, than um, a similar um, insect would have in the wild. Um, and then you look at like a moles or a bronia, things that lives in the trees and it eats insects. Like they're going to they're gonna catch a spider that uh, three days ago, the spider was eating a fly. Like where are the nutrients, right? Where are the fresh fruits that we also uh, always associate with vitamins and stuff like no it's just a plain old spider that um maybe is even a bit toxic uh, right so um yeah and and i don't yeah, so sorry i'm, no, I'm not you off at all but like it no. it doesn't mean that gut loading is not great but i mean if, if we think about it okay so one of the ways i started thinking about this a while ago was like, um, the feet, you know, it's really common for people to feed bee pollen to euromastics, like just straight up bee pollen granules. Oh yeah. And it's great. Like it's a great additive to food. Bee pollen's got a lot of nutrient density. Right. But like, it was the kind of thing that people were just sort of feeding ad libitum. It's like, just, just, just go to town, give them whatever they want. And then there were these arbitrary metrics that people would come up with. Like you can give them this many bee pollen granules per day. And it's like, how, there's no, you don't know, none of us know exactly what they should and shouldn't be getting in terms of that. But, but it, let's just take bee pollen into consideration first for a starter. Like the, the kind of bee pollen that we're getting here from a store 
is going to not, it's probably not going to resemble um, the bee pollen that they'd be getting from the flowers they're consuming in the wild. It might bear yeah. some, some, you know, structural resemblance, but it's not the same thing, right? Um, depending on what plant those bees were feeding on, did the bees get, have access or, I mean, um, exposure to pesticides and herbicides? Did those bees have, you know, like, were they, were they feeding on one plant or were they feeding on a diversity of plants? Like, the, the 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 chemical makeup of that bee pollen is going to look really really different depending on all those factors, and the same thing is true of the bugs that we're feeding. If 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 the bugs we're feeding them don't resemble the bugs that they'd be eating in in the wild, yeah, maybe we're we're supplementing and gut loading to fill gaps, and that's true. Right. But we're also probably giving them a glut of other things that they just have never encountered, that they've never mm-hmm. had in that quantity or that, or, or at all, because maybe that particular compound is not present in their diet in the wild or not, not present in, you know, biologically significant numbers, you know? And, and so it's like in, in, in the same way that we put a lot of emphasis on trying to remedy shortcomings and, and, and make things more similar to the, the sort of like the wild experience of an animal, we really got to like pay as much attention, if not more to the ways in which the, the experience we give them is very, very different. And, and most of the time people pay attention to the differences in sort of like the negative side of things. It's like, well, there's nothing about the ball Python in the wild that resembles rat keeping. Okay. I'm here to talk about that, but there's also nothing about mm-hmm. the ball Python in the wild that resembles a like a, like a, like a lab raised and bred rat that they're getting for a diet in every, oh, yeah. you know what I'm saying? So it's like, there are, totally. and like, what, are, what is the effect long-term, you know, we herbivorous reptiles, whether it's iguanas, chuckwallas, uromastics, stones, like kidney stones and bladder stones come up all, you know, certain kind of stones come up all the time. And it's like, oh, people, people are so quick to blame it on certain oxalates right or something right yeah oxalates yeah. right but like one of our one of our previous guests nathan carlos ripley sent me this great pdf that described a plant that ornate uromastics were eating in the wild that were like just rocket high in oxalate content like huge so it's like it maybe it's not that maybe it's not the same thing you know maybe it you know it's very very well could be maybe it's not just the oxalates in isolation right maybe it's that coupled with who knows what maybe maybe coupled with the with the artificial vitamins or something like who knows yeah yeah well, yeah there's so many filter. different factors oh we did i think he just froze for a bit i bet he'll pop back in there he is oh sorry about no that no worries I'm getting a yeah. no- notification from zoom that my connection is unstable um but uh yeah, you work on it for a second yeah, my bad. But basically, I'm just trying to say that like there are as many differences that we need to focus on that that are just go completely unthought about. Nobody's nobody's worried about like the oh, I mean, well, some people are. <laughs> nobody's necessarily worried about how much we're overdoing certain things in exchange for filling gaps that we perceive to be there, right? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. maybe we're wrong. especially. Especially um, if you think about like um, when I say I feed my my feeder insects um, fruits and vegetables, like how much sugar is going to be in, oh, in yeah. the fruit, right? Oh the, yeah. The, and in the wild, I think most animals when they when they eat insects, the the insects were probably full of um, greens, right? Oh, yeah. That's why I think grasshoppers are probably a good choice. Um, 
but unfortunately i don't breed grasshoppers i would really love to at some point but um i like to feed them every now and then and when i get them i always like feed them with like a dandelion or stinging nettle or any kind of like greens that i can get they don't get any fruit because it's not it's not good for a grasshopper right it's like way too much moisture way too much sugar um so but other insects i definitely do like um the dubia roaches, they get like a lot of mango yeah. and stuff. And the thing that I watched when I got low, I was I was gonna talk about it a little bit later, but um now that we're there, um I can might as well talk about it. The thing that yeah. I um look out for in gut loading is um again, it kind of goes by feel, right? Yeah. But mm -hmm. um I think um how do I say this? Um there are not many other reptile communities, like sub-communities, if you will, than the Ebronid a Baronia community that talked so much about carotenoids in the diet. Right. right? So yeah. It was a really hot topic in the Facebook groups a couple of years back when, back when the Facebook groups were actually full of like quality content. When I started, <laughs> um, exactly. Right. Like I, I started researching a Baronia around 2015, 2016. And then I started joining the Facebook groups because still to this day, there's no book out on them and you kind of had to mm -hmm. get the information somewhere. Right. And I think I can say, I know every single page on the internet that has the word abronia in it. <laughs> like I really went, went deep on, on the research part. So, um, oh, yeah. and then I was in these, in these Facebook groups and people, um, were showing like a, a blue graminia, right. And everybody yeah. would say like, oh, um, is this a morph or what can I do to make oh. it green again? Right? right. And um, that was like a really hot topic a couple of years back. And um, it still kind of is because so um, the general consensus was um, it's probably a mixture of like um, UV exposure, quality carotenoids. And I suspect it's even like the, the change in temperatures throughout day and night. Mm. So they, I think there's really something about it that kind of vitalizes them when the nights are really cold or they get like every other day that's kind of cold and windy. And then there's a warm day after that. I think that's kind of really good for their vitality. So I, I believe that does something to their color as well. But um, mm. the topic with carotenoids was really hot because people were, were arguing that um, in the wild, they eat all these insects that are full of greens, full of um, leafy material, foliage and, foliage and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And um, people were trying to do that artificially um, with the gut loading. And then you have all these um, powders like super pig. I, I use that as well. Yeah, but yeah, um, yeah. again, it's like um, highly concentrated, right? And maybe some other compounds that are always associated with the carotenoids are lacking. So um, I, I, yeah, I, I do use it, but um, I try to come up with some other methods. And then I started researching, okay, what kind of foods have the highest carotenoid content? And um, pretty much the, the carrot, because it's called carotenoid yeah. because of carrots, right? The carrot is pretty, pretty high. So it's like the gold standard, I would say. And I do believe if you're not feeding carrots to your crickets or your feeder insects, you're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um you said, Phil, like, uh, it's not, not a bad thing if the, the cricket is not super highly gut loaded, but it's super easy to throw in a piece of carrot and you know, you're getting like, um, some vitamin A, some carotin or quite a lot of carotenoids actually. So, and yeah. it's a super easy thing. And, um, it can also, um, enhance your own diet. Like I always have carrots at my house, you know, I yeah. eat a shit ton of carrots. Yeah. <laughs> no, totally. And I, and I just meant for the record, just to, just for the sake of clarity, I don't mean yeah. every time 
I just yeah. mean like sometimes, you know what I mean? Like I like agree. Sure, yeah, like, yeah, sure, sure. Some, sure. some days my doobie roaches and my crickets and my mealworm worms get carrots and bell peppers and oranges and yellow squash and greens mm. and everything. Mm-hmm. Some days sure. they get nothing, you know, some yeah. days they get potato, some days they get one thing. Some days they get blueberries. Some days they get eggs. Some, you know what I mean? Right. Like, like yeah, of course. Just whatever the hell, like whatever I've got, you know. So I mean, it, it, it's not. Um, I guess it's like the. Uh, I just like introducing the, the like the randomness, like the variability to it, you know. And it, and it's like I've been thinking, you know, think, I've been thinking about this too. You know how um, there's a lot of geckos. Well, a lot of animals will do this. You know, a lot of animals just kind of like eat will eat certain kinds of supplement on their own, like leopard geckos and whatnot. They'll just kind of chow mm-hmm. on it on their own. I really like that. Like, I love that because there's some level of like, well, you can kind of trust them to get what they're going to want and need on their own, you know, and, and in some, in some way now, obviously like, you know, we, I, I think that's one of the themes we've been talking about so far in the conversation is this idea of trust, trust in your animal, right? Mm-hmm. Trust. In they're going to tell you what they need and you just have to, learn to listen to them. Right. It's like, well, and, and as much as I think that, that we can expect that and we can trust that up into a point because, you know, we also have the other direction, which, you know, this kind of logic will cut both ways. It's like, well, yeah, uh, I trust them, but I also understand that, you know, given a certain context, they may overdo it on something because of there's mm. no, no limiter in place. Right. So the, 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 the example I like to give is like my dog, or, or right. My dog, she'll eat steak, but she'll also eat chocolate. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> she'll, she'll go to town yeah. on chocolate without knowing that it's not really good for her. Right. Mm-hmm. Or us like I, I love ice cream, but I'm not going to eat ice cream every meal because it's going to jack me up. I'm going to be in like real bad. Mm-hmm. Shit. It's going to be a real problem. Mm-hmm. So sure. I can't just trust, you know, people will say, oh, trust your body. Just eat whatever you want. It's like, no, that's not how it goes, sir. Um, but you know, it's the same thing with the reptile, our animals, right? We got to know that in some cases we can rely on them to do what they need to do. And in some cases we have to act as like the limiting factor and say, I know you're going to overdo this if given the opportunity, right? That's why we don't feed wax worms as a total diet for everything, because it just, it's not a value. It's not going to work. You know, I was right. going to say, I was going to say the, the waxworm example, and I've seen animals at a friend's place that, um, hope he's not mad for mentioning this, but, um, they were, they had some geckos that were only eating waxworms. And I told them like, you do know they can get addicted to that and stop eating anything else. And he's like, yeah, maybe, maybe they just like it. And I'm like, yeah, they're probably waxworm addicts at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, totally. Yeah, yeah, totally. And exactly. it's like, it can be challenging, you know, you, you think about, um, I think about like seasonality all the time and, and like boom and bust and how to plug mm. that into not just the amount of animals that they're getting, but also the kind of prey items that they're getting. And like the, the, the quality of those prey items can change just like the amount and the availability. It's the same thing. Mm. And uh, I think this was kind of inspired by a couple of the animals that I keep that have, um, really, uh, what do you call uh, really intense seasonal food preferences? So some of those mm. being like, for example, the Euromastics, there are times of the year where I'll go to feed them dandelion greens and they don't want anything to do with them. They'll spit them out. Ooh. They may come uh-huh. running over and go to eat it. And then they're like, nah, that's not really the flavor I want. And then maybe that's, that could be everything from the flavor 
interpretation by the animal. Maybe they're like, I don't like this doesn't taste good to me right now. It also could be a difference in the plant because of the time of year and what it tastes like. Oh yeah. 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 Maybe more like, um, how do you call it? Like, um, Maybe more it's less, more bitter or something, yeah, right? Right. Yeah. It, it may be more or less bitter. But or, mm-hmm. or like another example would be collared lizards, right? When I was keeping collared lizards, I, I've talked about this a bunch, but you might feed them insects throughout the entire year. And then around the end of summer, they quit wanting any of the insects. They just don't want to eat them at all. And then it's like, well, why don't they want to eat? And they seem kind of bored and whatever. You throw a feeder anole or a feeder gecko or a scorpion in there and they go absolutely bananas. They go crazy. And they hit that thing like a truck and you're like, ah, you were hungry, just not for what I was offering. So it's like, you you know, there, there's some level of like, um, that that's inspiring because then that tells, you know, that's just yet another signal that tells you that animal's expecting something at this time of year, or it's expecting to not see something at this time of year. You know, I don't feed a lot of flowers to my Euromastics in the off season because realistically, they're probably only going to see a lot of flowers in the spring, summer, right? At least conceivably. That's just a theory, but like, you know, so it's like, I'm not going to give them a lot of flowers during the, the, you know, anything outside of spring, summer. Now it doesn't mean that you should never do it, but it's just something, something to consider. I think, I think that seasonality is definitely like a super important thing to try and incorporate with stuff like this, because yeah, like you said, it's like, it, it also does affect even the flavors of things. Like, it's like, you don't eat, like, we don't tend to eat green greens once they go to seed because it makes them bitter. Right. It's like a similar thing, but like at that point, you know, like there's maybe, you know, the flower is a more edible component for the animals. And so they're focusing more on the flowers at that like point in the life cycle of a food plant. Right. But it's a similar thing with like, like a huge trigger for, um, like songbird nesting and stuff here has to do with like, where are the oaks at in their cycle of, of leafing out? Because, that is then correlated to like when are the um you know when are all the lepidoptera all the all the butterflies and moths laying their eggs on the oak leaves to provide those caterpillars right and there's a huge bloom of caterpillars that's like what the songbirds are all feeding their babies and stuff like that at least you know here and i think about that you know that that must relate or correlate on some level with herbivora as well like one thing i like to do occasionally is like like I will, like, I'll go through little seasons with where it's like, I am feeding my, you know, my polycris, for example, like a lot of caterpillars because, um, very often, you know, it's like, they're going to be encountering like, yeah, it's like, I wouldn't do that all year long. You know, I wouldn't just give them a bunch of wax worms all year, but for like a two week period, sure. I'll give them a bunch of wax worms. Because, you know, like that stimulates on some example, um, to some extent, you know, a larder in their natural range of when, you know, this certain food item is available in high density for this brief period of time, you know, and then otherwise might be unavailable the rest of the year. So exactly. But we don't, we don't really know what that looks like in nature. Like you, you exactly. um, brought up a good, a good example, like with the caterpillars in the tree, but um, we don't know exactly how that will be for the polycris in the wild. Right. Exactly. And oftentimes, um, like Phil said, this element of randomness just comes natural because you maybe have like a dubia colony and it doesn't go, it's not going so great. And then you start buying more crickets, right. To, to compensate for that. And then the animals will not eat dubias for like a month or so until the mm-hmm. colony like um, 
you know, starts building up numbers again. So, um, yeah, this randomness will like naturally occur, I think. So, um, yeah, but it's, it's, it's good to, to have, um, whether it would be like, what are you feeding to the, to the feeders or what kind of, um, insects you're offering. So you mentioned, um, caterpillars, um, Mm-hmm. I don't know. This is just a crazy idea of mine, maybe. But there are some caterpillar species that are um, bred as um, feeder insects, but mm-hmm. um, like silkworms, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wax worms and um, like the hornworms and stuff. But um, I don't know exactly know uh, what kind of what kind of plant they need or or how mm-hmm. they are being bred. But I still think like it would be so cool to have like um, a caterpillar species that's like kind of small and bright green and easy to mm-hmm. reproduce as like the new feeder insect like that would be so awesome oh yeah for, like a nose and stuff right they would go nuts for sure sometimes i'll actually do that when again like in the spring when the oaks are leafing out i will occasionally collect caterpillars i'll just like grab an oak limb and just shake it onto like a like a cloth, like a pillowcase or something like that. And all these little green caterpillars will fall, will fall on it. And I've, I've offered those to my lizards before. And yeah. yeah, it's like, they go crazy for it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But it would be so nice if there was a, if, if you could actually reproduce that and like, uh, propagate that, like, them. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But, um, I, I did some research on that. Um, I don't want to, give away what I found, but maybe, maybe <laughs> the market at some point, you know, okay, but, uh, there we go. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, it's, it's just an idea for now. Like, um, I don't have the yeah. space to, to, uh, extensively experiment with that kind of stuff, but, um, I have a few species that, um, that I'm looking at. And I think it would be a great, um, addition to, to the variety of feeder insects we have. Caterpillars. Like, yeah. yeah I, th- I think there's probably, like a huge untapped number of, I mean, un- I don't know about untapped. I don't know if that's the right phrasing here, but like there's probably a whole hell of a lot of things that would be phenomenal feeder, mm-hmm. um, feeder insects, feeder, like food items. Like, man, I'll tell you what, if I had the ability to buy mulberry leaves from people, like, I, I try all the time. Like I get, I can get some, you know, sometimes I can get some through Etsy and, some various sources and stuff like that. It's not like I can't find them, but I would love to have a consistent, reliable source for, for mulberry leaves where I can just yeah. get them all the time because yeah. the Europe love them. Everything here eats them and just loves them all the time. You know, whether it's that, whether it's the, like, I know insects eat them too, but it's just mm-hmm. like, it's, it's actually rather challenging to find them in any legitimate quantity. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or unless someone can help me out there, maybe someone will message me and be like, Hey dummy, just go to this website. And I'll be like, oh, yeah. thanks. you know, that'd be great. But, uh, you know, it, be, yeah. not just feeder, but plants too, you know, like feeder insects, but plants, you know, there's so many things that would be so nice to have on the regular or on hand or something available all the time that you could just give to the animals and just say, hey, go to town, knock yourself out. I'd love it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, whether it's right, but well, what you just said, like it has to fit like a certain set of um, criteria, I think, because first of all, it has to be like um, available in um, larger quantities, right? If you have like this one super food, but it's super hard to, to come by, that's that's not the best the best option to consider. I think it's cool when you get your hands on it, like every now and then, but um, to really have it like um, a consistent supply. Um, you know, crickets, they reproduce so quickly and, and roach species and, and other, there's a reason why we have these feeder insects in the hobby because most of them are like 
used to be pests, right? Mealworms yeah. um, and stuff like pests that uh, reproduce really easily in like mass numbers. So right. um, uh, that, that's where we have them in the in the hobby as, as feeder insects because they're so easy to to propagate and uh, reproduce. Uh, but um, it would be nice to have like an insect that has like like really good uh, uh, nutritional qualities and whatnot. Yeah. And then it also has to fit those criteria to be um, easy to care for and all that and mm-hmm. not being too dirty. Like I heard like when you want to breed silkworms, it's like a super time consuming and dirty yeah. uh, thing. So oh, yeah, it's a lot of work. Totally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so like it has to check all these, you have to check all these boxes, right? And it's probably uh, maybe there's not too much left at the end of the day, I think. <laughs> yeah, Seven. totally. It's true. Yeah. Well, before we go too far off the rails, I'm curious <laughs> if we could hear a little bit more about just like your current collection. I mean, you've spoken a little bit to Abronia and Spheridactylus, but um, yeah, what can you? What are you currently keeping, and and how are you keeping them? Right. Um, so you can see in the background um, a little tiny part of the the gecko wall, I call it, and that's where I keep like yeah. the, the Spheridactylus, the little um, what's the what's the um, common name for them? Um, I think least geckos or uh, dwarf geckos mm-hmm. uh, or micro geckos, like uh, something like that. So yeah. um, they have a name because they are super tiny, like um, maybe two inches in size, maybe three. And like, not just snout to vent, like full size, you know? So yeah. um, they're, they're super tiny. And obviously there's a little bit of variation. I have um, two species that are really, really small and two species that I would consider like a little bit, bigger for spherols um so um <laughs> let me think what kind of species am i keeping um let me think um so with the spherodactylus i started in 2016 let, let me give you the, the little story how i got into the spherols um and then um i can tell you how the how the collection evolved from there maybe um that sounds great okay cool um so i started in 2016 so there's like this cool little story i believe i did not have any any tank at the time i had like an old anolis um valenciani like the jamaican twig and all mm-hmm. yeah so i had like a pair um after my green anoles died um there was like half a year where i didn't have any animals and then i bought like a pair of these um jamaican twig and all and a couple weeks in the the male ate the female so wow. it was <laughs> yeah it was like um tragic but that's one of these species where of anoles where the males get so much larger and it's somehow the males saw the females as a, as a prey item i guess and um wow um and i and i it was a bit hard to to come by um another female so um i just kept the male and um then um he died essentially and i had him for like years and years it was a really old animal and then he died and i kind of like hey um i want to have um I want to have this hobby in my life. Like uh, maybe I look for a new mm. species, but nothing, nothing set in stone yet. And um, when I was younger, you know, you go through these periods where other things in your life take priority, right? And then um, uh, you kind of come back to the hobby, and then like you know. Um, but um, at that time, I was not actively looking for for something new. But my mother came home from work. Uh, one day and she had like this really small terrarium and she said like oh, I'm like what's this and she said um, oh um, my colleague gave this to me um, she used to keep a tarantula in there maybe mm-hmm. maybe you want to have this terrarium and I'm like what are you talking about like you never let me keep a tarantula like what are you talking about right um, and 
And she's like, oh, it's probably not a big deal. You know, like my colleague used to keep it. So, so I had this small tank and my first thought was, you know what? I heard of like these very small geckos that, that probably would be a decent size for them. I, th- I had no plans of keeping like, um, tarantulas in there. Um, so I was looking for these like small geckos. As I said, I read a lot. So I knew they exist. I was not sure if they are actually in the hobby. So I started researching. Mm-hmm. And um, I come across this this um, this page, this this uh, this website called um, dwarfgeckos.com, or in German like Zwerggeckos, and um, is like this really um, incredible page. I have to say, with all the details about the care and it like details the species that were in the hobby at the time, and like um, great instructions on how to create the backgrounds and what plants to use and what kind of feeder insects and all that. And mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, this is a great resource. Um, maybe, um, maybe I write the guy, whoever, uh, who, who wrote that page. Um, if, if I can get some geckos from him, he seems like a, like a nice, like a breather. Like he seems to have lots of species and turns out the guy lives like one hour away from me. So that was like, uh, wow. uh, that was really Perfect. lucky. Yeah. Yeah, so I contacted him via Facebook, and he's like, yeah, sure, I have some geckos. And for starters, if you never kept a, a Spherodactylus before, I would recommend you this species, that species, or that species. And I'm like, hmm, how much are they? And he gives me the prices, and I'm like, hmm, 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 hmm. I think I go with these. They, they look nice. So um, I, I drove there and got my first pair of Spherodactylus macrolepis mimatus. Um, um, I would say a medium-sized Spherodactylus, kind of brownish looking. Um, the females have these um, two spots on their on their back, on their shoulders that kind of look like eyes. Um, mm. Maybe a little side story there, like Spherodactylus. They, I um, some some of them are have like a really bright, colorful pattern, or like an orange tail or a yellow head, and some are more brownish with like um, some spots on their back. And um, I came across this article or this hypothesis, rather, that they actually um, imitate scorpions in the wild. Or, oh, wow. um, yeah, so it makes perfect sense for me. Or, or even the, what's the, uh, the venomous um, centipedes, what are they called? Scolopendra or something? Scolopendra, yeah. Right, right, right. And they have yeah. orange legs, right? And I they think have, they, like, some, some species do, yeah. I think some species do, yeah, and, and um, you see that in a lot of lizard species that uh, live on the forest floor. That um, let's look at um, Coleonyx or um, baby Diploglossus, like the gully wasps. They have like these um, these bands, and the the theory is that they mimic um, Scolopendra. Mm. And with the um, with the Spherodactylus, the theory is that they mimic uh, scorpions because like they have. Everybody who, who listens to this, they can go on Google and they um, Google any kind of Spherodactylus and then and they will get like a selection of, of images and then Google a scorpion. And you will see a certain similarity. Obviously, they don't have the claws, right? But the segments of the scorpion kind of look like the banding of the Spherodactylus. Anyway, I, I think that's interesting. So um, I got my first pair in um, 2016. <clears throat> so I went to this guy's place and that was like really... Um, profound moment for me because he had like a whole wall of tiny terrariums that were like super beautifully planted and designed and in every single tank there was like a a different species of sparrows and there were a bunch of babies crawling around and he's like oh check this out and and 
dude, that was like a really profound experience. And I'm like, wow, you can actually do that. Like, uh, yes, so cool. many species on, on, on a space where some people keep one monitor lizard, you know, oh, he yeah. had like, uh, he had like, I don't know, at least two dozen species and uh, like in many, many, many individuals, uh, where other people keep like one large iguana or something. So, uh, I thought like, ah, oh, that's kind of cool. And like, um, you could put so much detail into it. Um, um, that's how my, um, herpetology practice or terrarium practice actually evolved by getting to know this mm. guy and looking at the way he keeps the sparrows. And then of course, trying to imitate that. So I got my first pair of the Macrolepis mimetas and, um, yeah. Again, you get these tiny, tiny geckos, put them in a, in a nicely planted tank with leaf litter and bark and whatnot, and you don't see them. <laughs> Again, we yeah. have that situation where you have to trust the process, right? And yeah. um, they, they start to come out, and then they are more and more curious, and they look at you, and then they start to come out every time you feed fruit flies and stuff like that. Um, so I kind of got... Um, uh, gathered some experience with them and they started to lay eggs and the eggs are like super small. They look like, um, you know what a Tic Tac is like this little uh, peppermints, right? You know those? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 And the eggs are even smaller than that, but, um, yeah. So it's like super, super tiny. And, um, and sometimes you don't find the eggs and then the babies start crawling around through the parents tank as a nice surprise. Right. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so this was the point where I really, think like my um i leveled up a little bit like i had a species that was kind of uncommon i started breathing them and um yeah it was it was just a fun experience you know i experimented with different feeders obviously the staples are fruit flies and i always dust right. the fruit flies um not just to to get like the vitamins and calcium um on the things but also to inhibit the movement a little bit right <laughs> excuse me um i Things I always dust are crickets and fruit flies. So, um, because those are generally insects that tend to move a lot. So I always dust them and with others like isopods, I feed a lot, but you don't have to calcium dust them because they're the most calcium rich feeder you can, you can, you could get actually. Um, anyway, um, I think I'm going off track here a little bit. So with the sparrows, no, yeah, no. Was, <laughs> yeah. Um, so with the spherodactylus, it was the first time, um, I was actually successful breeding them. And then, of course, you think, okay, they just need this much space, right? They said, like, not too much space because they're so tiny. And I thought, like, okay, it would be a good idea to get, like, a second species. But I was always the type not to impulse buy, but to research and research. Um, and that's another thing. Like, the terrarium hobby can also um, give you, like, the basics of, like, project management, right? At first, there's, like, the vision. Or I, you could also call it like the, the fantasy stage where you, um, you see a species and you think like, Oh, that, that looks interesting. I want to keep them. Or you just straight up fall in love with them and you need to have them. Right. Um, that's like the fantasy stage. And then you get to the research stage where you research. Okay. What do they actually need? Like what size of enclosure? How do I keep them? Okay. You have the fantasy stage, the research stage, and then you go to the. I don't know what you could call it, the uh, application stage maybe, where you actually build the tank, you buy the lights, and you experiment if you hit the right temperature temperature zones. Um, I think the terrarium hobby can give you that. So I started experimenting with like 
having this vision of keeping a couple more species and I started building my own tanks, like doing my own backgrounds. And um, it was, it was just, yeah, it was fun. It, it kind of evolved from there. So um, the second species I got was actually something really rare. It was a Gonatodus daldini. I don't know if you heard of them. Mm. It's not a Spiridactylus, but it's the same. It's yeah. the same size, like a very, very small gecko from the Caribbean, from a mm. just one forest area in a Union Island in the Caribbean wow, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Just a very tiny forest patch, right? And um, they were kind of discovered by by accident, essentially. And um, but somehow they that's kind of a tricky subject but somehow they ended up uh, at least a handful ended up in in the hobby and people actually managed to breed them which yeah you could argue like oh how did they get here and whatnot but um mm. at the time they were they were not size listed and um people actually started breeding them <coughs> and um i was lucky enough to to get like a captive bred pair and um not, not long later, I started breeding them as well. So that was my second species of um, small geckos. And um, I kept them actually the same as the, the, the Sferodactylus. You can also cohab them. Um, yeah, you can cohab different spheros. So, so I had the Mimetes, the Gonatodus Daudini. And at the time when I got them, shortly after they were listed in CITES 1. So from no protection to the highest international protection possible. So I went to the local authorities and said, like, hey, look, I got these geckos. Um, I want to make sure everything is um, correct with the paperwork. Can I, I, I will tell you right now, I have this pair and it's of legal origin. And tell me when I need to do something, right? As soon as they listed CITES 1, we need to get in, in, in contact again. And that's what I did. And I got the paperwork on them because I had them before they were actually protected. That's how, how it works. So whenever I breed them now, I have to go to the authority again to apply for paperwork because I know I have like a stock, a legal stock of them, but every single animal that I want to sell, I have to go to them and apply for mm -hmm. paperwork. And it's kind of a pain. And that's the reason why, um, in the meantime, I kind of stopped breeding them and, um, I separated some of the pairs I have and I only sold one pair to this, up, up until this point, I think. Let me. Yeah. Yeah. And the rest wow. I just kept back. I have like, I have a couple of them that I bred, but, um, it was just too much hassle for me to, to apply for all the paperwork. But I know a couple of people. Yeah. That makes sense. Who have like a long mail or something. And I, uh, just for the, for the sake of, um, doing something for the species, I guess I kind of have to give them a female at some point. It's just like an yeah. email that I have to write, like, hey, look, can, can I please apply for this paperwork? And I think I remember it was like two months and then I got like the yellow CITES papers. Mm -hmm. um, but it was just, I don't know, it was just too much <laughs> for me. But anyway. It's just another I, layer. Yeah. Exactly, right? Um, um, and they asked me if I know how to individually identify them. And I'm like, no, and it's not... Um, it's not a requirement, but, but I always provide photos of the actual animal, but you're not going to see anything. Like maybe the, the, the spots on the back are a little different, but I doubt that you can actually individually recognize them. Male and female look exactly the same in that species. So, um, and so do many, many individuals. Um, so what else do I have? That was my second species that I still keep. That was, um, in 2018, uh, when I got them. 
Um, what was the next one? Ah, the next one was um, Spherodactylus calocricus. Like this is yeah. For people who are not in the genus, they probably never heard that. But um, uh, very very small species. Um, kind of orange looking, light orange brown bands, and very small. Um, um, I managed to breed them for a while. Um, just over the past year, I lost. Um, I think two females and um, had some eggs that I didn't hatch. So, um, yeah, right now I only have three animals left, unfortunately. But um, I bred them for a while and I exchanged with other breeders. For example, um, I gave one pair of um, these Colocricus geckos to um, a guy and got um, Ferdactylus physacinos in exchange, another very small species, very beautiful looking. So that's the fourth one. Oh, my God. I got like, I got these four, then I got alphas. These are the latest ones and that are quite, God, wow. yeah, you know them? Reptime no, I just, I'm just, yeah, I, I think I've seen them from Armin, but I'm just like, I oh, just yeah. looked up the Spherodactylus just genus and I, I had no idea that there were that many species. Oh yeah. It's like it's over a hundred species in the genus, which is just mind blowing to me. Right, right. And the cool thing is, like, if they were all in the hobby, you could have them in the same room, essentially, because they don't need a yeah. lot of space. To be honest. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> it's really cool. So, um, I have the Spheridectus alphas. Um, I don't know how to pronounce these names, to be honest, but um, That's okay. Rosa Aura, uh, yeah, whatever. Um, yeah, they are from uh, Utila and Roatan, and I actually visited Utila, which is like an island um, yeah. off the coast of yeah and um and that island there's an endemic species um spheridactylus point dextry and um let's just say i have them as well and uh Ooh. yeah i've bred them before yeah yeah i have Amazing. a breeding pair of those um i think i don't want to dude i shouldn't know this but i think i have seven different species of them yeah wow sounds and crazy when still, I say anything, but yeah <laughs> and there's still like at least a hundred other species out there which is wild. Like, I mean, it makes sense. Cause I think that like, I think about just how, you know, like the anoles are like the most diverse group of lizards. And they're also from that same region, you know, they're kind of, Oh, they're, they're centralized in that Caribbean region. And I think that like, because of the diversity of islands, it just, it, you know, creates this incredible radiation and speciation effect where you get all kinds of diversity. Exactly. And it's funny you mentioned that. That's exactly what kind of drew me to that area of the world. Like, I like other yeah. geckos from other places, like Salsuma, for example, but they never like had the same fascination for me, like uh, the the Caribbean species, right? Or species right. from Central, Central America. Like, that's definitely my favorite place in terms of um, herpetofauna. Yeah. As you said, like, there's such a variety because you have all these small islands. And um, mm -hmm. even with the anoles, like you have the different ecotypes, like you have the trunk, uh, yeah. uh, trunk anoles or trunk ground ecotypes, and they're like closely related to like another ecotype than the same ecotype from another island. Yeah. Like, that's, there's so that's much going so on. That's so cool. Yeah. Right. I, I don't know if people know that, but um, what, what would be a good example? Like, um, take um, a green anole or something very closely related to a green anole, like Anolis elisoni. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you, they're from Cuba, right? And then you have another ecotype from Cuba that's um, I know, oh, 
Yeah, and all the stuff, like the brown anoles. I think yeah. these two are more closely related than um, other green anoles from another island too. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. So basically, so basically, yeah, like the whole the whole thing with the ecomorphs with, with anoles is like, you know, you have all these different islands and you would think that like on the different islands, the uh, examples of the same kind of like ecomorph style. So like, say you have like a twig anole from this island and a twig anole from this other island. You would think that those would be closely related. But actually what's true is that um, they're more closely related to like animals of different ecomorphs on the same island. So like you could have a crown giant anole, you know, that's more closely related to like a twig, you know, ecomorph anole because they're on the same island. And so it's like basically expressing how these these different like this radiation has occurred independently on all these different islands rather than like rafting occurring between the islands that's contributing to that speciation which is just so wild to me and so cool exactly and thank you you made a much better job of explaining that concept <laughs> it's, it's kind of confusing to explain but there's there's actually a really amazing video that people can look up on youtube about it um I'm trying to remember uh, the evolution name. Evolution of, of anoles or something? Yeah, Is evolution it? of anoles or something like that. Yeah. And it yeah, talks yeah, yeah. about that that pattern and has like really good illustrations for it. But right, I highly right, recommend right. people check it out. Cause like for for like a natural history geek or an ecology geek, it is like really, really fun to learn about that stuff. Right, right. And um, yeah, as I said, like I was always fascinated with um this group of animals and the high degree of diversity they they have. Um and um Eventually, I ended up going to to um, Utila, Honduras, which is not like actually part of the Caribbean, but it's in the Caribbean Sea, right. like it's off Central yeah. America, right? And it yeah. feels like a, like the Caribbean, like a, it has like a very like um, it's close, yeah, yeah, exactly. And the climate is the same, and even the people. I think um, the the original population of the island uh, is like a mix of uh, people from the Cayman Islands that came there mm -hmm. and some Scottish settlers and they speak the weirdest English accent you ever heard. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. it's like a mixture of Jamaican and Scottish. Like, uh, it's very That's so funny. Yeah. So, um, that was one of the reasons, um, I went there. So I, I, I was, it was about time that I had to write my master's thesis and I studied forestry. Right. So, um, I got oh, to, cool. yeah, I got to like learn more about, um, uh, forest ecology and stuff and forest management and then um, I had to write my master's thesis in that and I went to the different professors and I was like I wasn't super intrigued with the topics they had to offer and mm -hmm. I had this like vision in my mind like okay I wrote like a like a kind of a boring bachelor's thesis on, on trees in the city and how they adapted mm -hmm. to it and then I thought like maybe for my master's thesis I I I should go abroad, right? I should do something yeah. cool. And, uh, but nobody had something to offer. So, um, I thought like, how cool would it be if I could, I, um, like kind of combine it with conservation and maybe even reptiles. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, that was, that was, uh, the idea. And then I started like, uh, looking around. And then, um, funny thing is, Utila on this island, there's like an endemic iguana species, right? Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I remember being a child, right, being a little uh, twelve-year-old kid, and uh, my mom would buy me a reptile magazine uh, because um, 
I, I, I read so much about that stuff. And I remember reading about Uchila for the first time with, at like 12 years old in this reptile magazine and this like endemic iguana. And there's like German scientists building um, a conservation station essentially. And um, <clears throat> so that was in the back of my mind. I thought like, hey, maybe, maybe check that place out. Like I went to yeah. the website and then they were looking for, for volunteers to, to volunteer at the station. And, uh, and they also offered like, uh, research opportunities. And, um, I got in contact with them and I'm like, okay, it's like, what kind of research can I do there? Like, can we, can we find something that I can maybe um, bring my forestry degree into that? And we started dabbling with ideas, what can be done in like, a yeah, in like a, um, reasonable amount of time or what's actually like the the hot topic out there or or what i feel safe in contributing mm -hmm. to and then um the thing about utila is they have like lots of uh mangrove trees like a very rich right. mangrove ecosystem yeah and um um and half of the city is basically flooded for half of the year so they have like really interesting like wet savanna ecosystems mangroves and stuff and this one iguana evolved to just live in the mangroves it just yeah. lives there but the problem is iguanas have to lay eggs right where do you lay eggs right, in the mangroves? of course yeah, yeah of course the ground is super muddy and um the tree hollows are maybe too uh wet and dark and whatnot so yeah every year these females migrate to the to i think two or three beaches on the island that are actually sandy wow. and um yeah they lay their eggs there Problem is though, local people started um, noticing raccoons on the island uh, that yeah. haven't been there before. Yeah, and of one of my professors back in Germany uh, did lots of research on invasive raccoons in Europe. So I thought, like, okay, maybe we have something there. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So um, that's what I wrote my master's thesis on. So um, invasive raccoons on Utila, Honduras, and their impact on. Um, in reptiles, yeah. Wow, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a pivot uh, away from forestry. A little bit, but the thing yeah, is, yeah. though, in my forestry studies, um, I always uh, gravitated more towards the conservation side of things, right? Mm -hmm. So it was like forestry science. So it was like um, you could go into like different directions. Do you want to more go more into like the um, forest management side of things or even like wood production or more into the conservation side. So I tended to gravitate right. more to the conservation aspect and that invasive species topic fits right in there. So, um, of course, yeah, it makes perfect. Yeah. <coughs> so, Very cool. um, that's what I did. So I went there, uh, full of enthusiasm and then I, uh, yeah, things, um, a lot of things didn't go as planned. So I had like a bunch mm. of camera traps and I actually managed to, um, capture, um, a bunch of raccoons on the camera traps, which is like, um, how do you say that? Um, yeah, basically a small success because I could uh, prove they're actually there. And then I had right. certain sites where I had like both the endemic iguanas and the raccoons. So I actually could say like, Hey, look, they, um, actually occur in the same habitat. But, mm -hmm. um, other than that, I, I put out some camera traps and then some were stolen and others were uh, on the yeah. other end of the island. And, um, the, the local fishermen told me like, no, we don't go there um, for the next uh, three weeks or something. And then I could actually only check on the cameras like two or three times or something or mm -hmm. anyway, stuff like that. So I didn't get as much data with the camera traps I, as I would like 
like to have. So, and I'm like, right. what can I do? I'm out here and I have all this equipment with me and all these high hopes of getting all this data. But yeah, it ended up essentially being like um, these really like, um, uh, how do you say that? Um, when you find something, yeah, evidence. Yeah. So I found evidence. Right. They're actually there. They occur in the same habitat. But um, then it ended up being more like um, an analysis an analysis of the existing uh, literature. So um, because these iguanas lay the eggs on the beaches, um, it's kind of the same nesting ecology than uh, like um, sea turtles. Right. Exactly. Actually, That's what it made, reminded me of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of the same nesting ecology, uh, like sea turtles and, um, sea turtles do lay their eggs on the uchila as well. So, um, I like dig, the dug deep into like, um, okay, what effect do raccoons actually have on sea turtle nests or other, um, reptile populations? And then mm-hmm. I concluded that they, um, I couldn't prove it to be honest, but I concluded they might be a threat to the local, um, herpetofauna. Yeah. And, um, which they probably are, to be honest, because they're such formidable yeah. predators. Like, um, and they actually compete with the iguanas for resources, for other resources. So, um, sure they eat the um, I'm yeah, they, I'm they sure they would eat the young uh, ones. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> so I, I, I didn't know, I didn't notice, but I started researching and I came across like a handful of YouTube videos showing a raccoon in Florida eating an invasive green iguana. So that was the other mm. way around. The raccoon was native there. But the green iguana was uh, invasive, right? And they actually eat yeah. the adult iguanas. They grab them by the neck and just, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, raccoons are savage, dude. Yeah, they're exactly. hard to mm-hmm. And they 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 compete for for resources with the um with the iguanas. So the iguana I, I I'm talking about is um Ctenosaura bakeri, the Utila. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So um um. And they rely on tree hollows in the mangroves as shelter uh, because there's these tropical storms coming in or of periods of like really hot weather where they have to seek shelter. And there's actually mangrove forests where this one particular mangrove does not grow and um, the other mangroves don't tend to have the, the right size of tree hollows. Right. So you almost have no iguanas there or just like tiny babies that... Um, and, um, the good habitats are where I think it, it's the red mangrove, but I'm not entirely sure. I should know this, but it's been a while. Anyway, um, there's like, uh, mangrove forests that don't have enough tree hollows and the ones that do, they're densely populated with iguanas, mm. but raccoons also tend to, um, spend the day in tree hollows. So there's like this. This right. conflict, this competition as well. So they will definitely impact the population there. That's what I could show. Another little conclusion that I drew, I'm not sure if this is um, perfectly scientific correct. It was just a hypothesis. So there was this um, population of like island raccoons on Cozumel Island in Mexico. Yeah. They have like, a, they have like a specific type of raccoon that got there and that's actually recognized as an, as a proper species. And they lived on this island uh, way before, yeah, yeah. And then um, a film crew shot a movie in the 70s on this island. And in the movie, they have like a bunch of boas. And they just released mm-hmm. the boas on the island. Oh, and no. previously, there were no boas on Cozumel. And um, I think I remember hearing about this at some point, yeah. 
Yeah, I think it was Cozumel Island. I'm not like hundred yeah, percent sure, but I right. think it was different. Yeah. Yeah. So um and then they could actually say like, oh, the boas grow so big, they're actually a threat to the native raccoons. So I concluded the boas are native to Utila Island, and mm -hmm. maybe they're sort of a natural control to the um invasive recruits then. You know wow. what I mean? Like it's always yeah, like yeah. a balance, like what's invasive, what's native, but um they could potentially if if they're large enough, of course, like a small boa cannot cannot eat a raccoon because right. yeah, but but a big one actually can raccoon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's what I'm saying. So the problem is people obviously in the villages they have chickens and whenever they see a snake they just chop it yeah. up you know so they don't yeah, want the, the boa around them so um there's less and less boas and um so if you take that approach but because like um to be honest i think at this point it doesn't make sense and it's like very cost intensive to mm -hmm. completely eradicate all the raccoons like you have to put so much resources into that um yeah way too much maybe take like more more natural approaches like um incentivize the hunters that whenever they see them, they could, you know, kill them or tell the people not to kill boas because they're actually a natural um, mm -hmm. uh, control for them. So, yeah, that's what I did in uh, in Utila on this island. And if you want to go harping, um, it's in the Carib Caribbean or in Central America. I think it's a nice place. Yeah, like yeah. you can see a lot of nice herpetofauna. And the neighboring island as well, Roatan, really, yeah. really cool. Like, um and it's like a really rich um, diving culture. I didn't get to dive right. at all. I was just snorkeling. But, um, dude, they have like coral reefs and um, lots of anoles running around. Oh, I remember. I was never in the tropics before that, right? So that was the first time I arrived on um, Roatan at the airport. And I get to this hostel. And I walk inside the um, through the doors of the hostel. And there's like this beautiful garden, palm trees everywhere. And there's like these little basilisks running around on their hind legs. Dude, I've never seen this. I'm like, what is this? Like, and there's all these little basilisks. <clears throat> that was like really cool for me to see. And um, of course, you see the, the tinosaurus running around, um, the, oh, the yeah. black iguana. What are they called? Spiny, spiny tail iguanas, right? Yeah, that's what they yeah. typically call them. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. We call them black iguanas because yeah, they they are kind of dark, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like they also have a like a spiny tail, most species at least. There's these other ones like the what's it called, the fencer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. little one, Cacrix. Yeah, right, Phil and right. I have both kept those in the past. They're really cool. Yeah, ooh, mm -hmm. I like those guys a lot. Right, right. Interesting genus as well, right? So, um, but the thing is though, um, there's this competition between like the Ctenosaurus similis, the common spiny tail iguana, right. and the, the Ctenosaurus bakeri. And it's believed that the, the similis are so aggressive that they kind of pushed the ancestors of the bakeri into the mangrove forests. Because, um, besides the mangrove forest, yeah, yeah, that's the, the theory. So Utila is the only island in the world where like, Three endemic iguana species occur. You have the green iguanas, so cool. the the spiny tail iguanas, and the utila spiny spiny tail iguanas. Amazing. Wow. Yeah, man. Very cool. And um, you can see so many cool things there, dude. You can, as I said, basilisks and all. And um, I feel I know you keep um um 
these little with the blue heads. What are they called? Oh, the uh, whip racers. Whip tails. Yeah. Yeah. You have those as well. Yeah. You have like a like a, a Honduran variety of them there. They call them shaky yeah. paws. Yeah, shaky they, paws. Because they, yeah, they do that. They do that all they the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So funny. It's so That's funny. Cool. Really funny. Yeah. Exactly. So they run around the beach between all the debris. Honestly, like some of the beaches are really like full of plastic litter and stuff. But you see these little mm-hmm. shaky paw lizards running around there and doing this all the time. Yeah. 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 They're hilarious to watch. And then how do they Very like, cool. uh, how do you keep them? Like um, temperature wise oh. and all that? Yeah. I keep them pretty hot. I just, I have them in, in basically like a big, in a, a huge pool. Uh, kind of like I have the euros and I fill it with, you know, anywhere from two to nine inches of sand or so and, mm-hmm. uh, stack a bunch of stones in it and, 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 um, Mopani wood, you know, the whole kit and caboodle mm-hmm. and then just feed them bugs. And, and, um, I mean, they're, they do great. They're really hardy, really tough little, little bastards. Um, boy, they're little, like little rockets though. Little color rockets, man. They Ooh, just, yeah, yeah. some of the fastest lizards I've ever had. They're pretty surreal. Oh yeah, pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they, they used to be on the on the beach there. Like, uh, yeah, I can. I, I assume they like it uh, a bit hotter than so because, like, not inside the forest, but on the beach between the rocks and um, yeah, yeah. So that's right. that's um, that's perfect. Like how you keep them. So yeah, I did that, and oh my god, we haven't even talked about a Bronia, right? <laughs> no, yeah, we yeah, gotta yeah. talk about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> let's go. Let's go. Um. So my time in Honduras, I came back and, um, as I said, like I started researching Abronia like a long time ago. Like the first time I heard about him was like in 2014 when I was still living in a dorm and, um, on the floor above me, there was like my friend living and I got this reptile magazine in the mail that I have a, had a subscription to. And on the cover were Abronia. And I'm like, dude, what are these? I never heard about them. Like, these are so cool. And we were like completely geeking out and like, we yeah. never heard about them. And that was 2014. So there was actually like, um, like a care guide in German from a guy who actually yeah. managed to breed two different species, I think. Uh, and, um, the first thing he said was like, keep them outdoors in the summer. That's, yeah. that's like what a lot of Euro- European keepers do. Um, so um obviously I'm in the I'm in the English Facebook groups as well and I know um a lot of people in the US or Canada or wherever they keep them indoors. Most people uh tend to use screen cages with which I think is the best, but um a lot of people keep them indoors um mm-hmm. because they just don't have the proper climate to keep them outside. So Abronia right. are from um highland forests in Central America. Um, a lot of people say cloud forests, but there's like a mm-hmm. distinction, I believe. So a cloud yeah. forest, I believe, is like always super high humidity and almost like a little bit of a cooler rainforest, right? Yeah, um, exactly. Abronia, not all Abronia live in that kind of habitat. Like uh, mm-hmm. they live in like pine oak forests, like in the highlands. Mm-hmm. And there will be clouds and there will be fog and whatever, but there's also like a dry period. And I think um, a lot of people don't really uh, think of that when they think of a bronia, right? Right. So, uh, yeah. So uh, that's, that's I think really um, new keepers should know that it's not always like cloud forest, it's like a catchy term, but um, it's not 100% correct when you think about keeping them. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, anyway, um, I started researching him back uh 
2014, 15, 16. That's when the, there was more and more content on the internet. Mm-hmm. And um, at some point, I developed this idea like, yo, I really want to do this. You know, I had this Ferrodactylus collection growing at the time. And um, I was um, lucky enough to live like in a, in a, in an apartment with like a big balcony, right? So, yeah. um, yeah, and I still live in that same apartment actually. Um, so I thought like, yo, this would be, this would be actually doable to put the Abronia yeah. outside in the summer. And, um, I think I texted a guy. There was like, um, some Lutrochila for sale at some point. And, um, uh, I don't know. I didn't do it. And then there was like this magical moment when there's like an adult pair of Abronia mixteca, which was like my dream species, wow, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. There was an adult pair for sale. And, um, I saw this and I'm like, Oh my God, they look amazing. Like, Oh, I should do this. And I talked to a friend, like, should I do it? And he's like, yeah, do it. <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. I called up the keeper or I wrote an email and then we ended up calling and, um, we had a long conversation and I'm like, um, why are you selling them? And he's like, Oh, I want to focus on other species. And, um, but they're perfectly healthy. Like, don't worry. And, um, actually they are, um, they actually made it before. Like he saw mm. them made, but still wanted to yeah. sell them. I don't really understand why, but yeah, I, yeah I really do believe he, he didn't have enough time to take care of them anymore. Yeah. That's, that, yeah. that's what I really think. And then I received them and, um, the same friend that I started geeking out about Abronia, he had like um, a wooden cage um, uh, made um, for his green anoles in the summer. And then he uh, didn't need that cage anymore. He said like, hey, you can have it for the Abronia. And then I had like a setup for them. And um, it was perfect. So I got them in December and obviously I kept them indoors then. And back then, as I said, the Facebook groups were really like active and full of valuable information. And um, I was researching what kind of lights to use. So and, and a lot of people um, from, from Europe actually told me to use a metal vapor or what's it called? Metal halide? Uh, metal halide. Metal halide. Yeah. I think that's what it's called. So the thing about them is they give off lots of light, uh, lots of UV and um, a little bit of heat. So like mm-hmm. the perfect mixture, exactly what I wanted to have for the Bronia, like high light intensity, high um, UV output, and even a little bit of heat, but not too much, right? So the bathroom yeah. spot is like around, let me think, um, oh, obviously I have Celsius in mind. So the bathroom spot is like 30 Celsius, which is about 90 Fahrenheit, I think. Yeah, yeah. Let me confirm Yeah, but, yeah. I think that's okay, right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right around there. And... um. So, 86. Um, 86. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe even a little bit, little bit. Yeah. But that's what I say. It's not always 86. Sometimes yeah, it's yeah, 80, sometimes it's 90. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, of course. Um, but that's what I like to keep the, the basking, basking sites, um, in the winter time and a very cool ambient. Mm-hmm. So, um, around, let me think, um, maybe in the low sixties Fahrenheit and around mm-hmm. like, um, 18 Celsius, maybe even lower sometimes, depends on what time of winter it is. So that's how I uh, overwinter them. And they don't, the thing is though, some of them brewmates, some don't. Like some of them are active all, all throughout winter, but mm-hmm. they, they noticeably slow down. And some of them just, as we discussed in the beginning, like just go out, all right, bye. I'm a hide for two months, you know, uh, and um, mm-hmm. you don't see them. But it's really 
different and they will still eat when it's like really cold. Like they will still take food. So I never um, actually like let them go completely off food in the winter time unless I don't mm -hmm. see them, you know? Yeah. Another thing I do is I always tongue feed, you know, that way I can control what they eat. Yeah. And um, I still can have them like have little hunting behaviors, you know, but um, sometimes when I have grasshoppers or something, then I throw the grasshopper in and they can hunt a little bit, but I don't want to mess with crickets running around in a screen yeah. cage. Because I have some screen that's a bit larger and the cricket could crawl right out. I don't want that. Right, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah, so exactly. So that's how I set them up. And I think um, when you look at a bronia here, there's still a lot of people who uh, want to do the research. But um, uh, there's conflicting information online. So um, the very like um, quite old article, but still valid information is by Jason Wagner in mm -hmm. reptiles magazine i think and uh he outlined like the basic para parameters that many many other abronia keepers have um have uh, copied essentially right so a right, layer yeah. of moss layer of sphagnum moss like a thick layer um i kind of kind of tend to deviate from that a little bit like i use soil in some mm -hmm. corners of the cage now <laughs> but that's like the basis mulch lots of sphagnum moss and Parts of the sphagnum moss can dry out every now and then. Parts should always be moist so they can kind of regulate. And um, yeah, what else about their care? And I obviously keep them outdoors in summer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. And you've been able to successfully breed them, haven't you? Oh, yeah. Your pairs of bread, yeah. Have, have yeah, they yeah. bred several times now? It's And are you just keeping the Mixteca, right? That's the only species you're working with currently, or do you have others? Oh no, I um have two species currently. So I have had the Mixteca pair and they um yeah. they did uh they were paired up. Um turns out um the the um mother then had um babies the next season. So um that was nice. like really, really nice seeing these little silver yeah. black baby lizards running around. That was really cool. <clears throat> and then uh since then so that was spring 2020 and ever since then i successfully reproduced them every year the mixteca Whoa, yeah that's so they're good. like clockwork yeah for me at yeah. least yeah. yeah yeah and not too many people breed them in europe so um yeah it's one of my so favorite kind of a, species in the genus too it's such a beautiful lizard dude it's really dude, variable and, um, yeah Dude, I can send you some pictures. Like one of the coolest feelings for me is like um, if I do get in contact with people that want to buy baby Abronium Execa from me and then, mm -hmm. then they do and I give them all the info that I know. Like I don't have any secrets, right? So I yeah. give them everything I know. And then after like six months, after like a year, I see a picture of a, an actual animal that I kind of raised yeah. and is now in a new home. And it looks so nice and I see so much variability. It's amazing. Yeah. So That's, cool. Yeah. So Dude, you haven't that, had any issues with, with the babies? I know that a lot of people, at least in the US, I've heard have struggled with, with rearing the baby abronia, that they're really delicate. Have you had any issues with that? Interesting. So obviously I heard that before and I was like really yeah. uh, paranoid about losing the babies, but um, I had um, in the last two seasons. So for me, they had like litter sizes between six and 12. So mm -hmm. it was always like uh, 12 or 10 or 11. And last year I had six. So, um, and I last two seasons, I had um, one baby die very early 
in each litter. Mm. So in, in total, I lost like two baby babies out of like um, a couple dozen that I raised. So um, oh, yeah, so that's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So and it was like quite early. Um, I noticed the baby. One of the babies was was um, walking funny, and then um, or like laying around a bit lethargic, and then the next day mm. it was dead. And I do not know what the cause is. You know, I. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can only imagine, like, if that happens to the whole litter and you don't know what's going on, it's like pff, horrible, yeah. you know? Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, and I even um, put the babies outside quite early. So I put all the abronia outside on the balcony um, at la- in, like, late May. So when the night temps are, like, over 8 or 10 degrees, let me think. Yeah, people can, yeah. People can convert that to Fahrenheit, but um, mm. still quite cool nights, right? So um, so then I put them out and obviously they have to get adjusted a little bit. And like two weeks later, maybe one, le- one week later or something, I put the babies outdoors and I keep them exactly the same as the parents. Wow. Yeah. And, Very um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So the I'm first sorry, thing what they was get, the other oh, species? I cut you off oh, earlier. Of Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, little, what do you call them? Oh, right, little, right. Yeah. Little Chila. Yeah. Little yeah. Chila. I call them Little yeah. Chila. I want to make it sound Spanish a little bit. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, I think that's where it comes from, right? Mexico. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I think you did say um, that earlier. I, I just forgot. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I keep those. And, um, those were my like dream species from the start. Like, I have this bright, um, uh, olive yellowish mixteca right and then i have this mm-hmm. um cool looking um Lithoshila that um has the little horns in the back like the auricular spines yeah. dude and i'm i'm so happy with them I, there's no other way to describe it i'm just happy yeah. that yeah I'm, I'm, I'm keep them right so it's 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 great and uh one of the literal pairings um i saw lock up like three times this year the same pair and then i separated them i'm like okay this male is crazy like uh, i will i will let the females chill out a little bit but um mm-hmm. so there's like one pairing that i saw maybe there's more but the the the, the thing is though the, the season for pairings is always like um usually for me it was always early september with the mixteca like i said i reproduce them every year and it was always the first week of september it was like clockwork they would pair up pretty much the same time every year. Mm, this w- this year we had quite a warm September, a little bit odd. Um, so I saw two pairings lock up. So right now I have five pairs, actually, five adult pairs. So that's um, three pairs of Mixteca, a mm-hmm. um, couple holdbacks for me, then a new female from another breeder, and um, one male that I have from another guy uh, that's kind of like a breeder Sloan, I, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see any luck. Let's see uh, how that goes. Um, but yeah, so I have like five potential pairings, and I saw um, or five potential five pairs, and I saw two pairings. So this is still quite good, I think. Yeah, yeah. That's excellent. Very yeah. Cool. And again, like uh, people, people freak out when they get too hot in the summer, right? Yeah, <clears throat> I heard that. Like, don't don't let them get over ninety. Like, I don't put them out in bright sunlight when it's ninety Fahrenheit outside, right? That's stupid. You always have to provide some sort of shade, and if it's like really warm, cover the whole tank with like wooden boards or something, and mist yeah. like crazy. So yeah, and it seems to work. Like I had a uh, ambient temps up to. 
38 Celsius, which is 100 Fahrenheit. And wow. they all did fine. Yeah, they all did wow. fine. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Very cool. Yeah, but you do have to miss a lot then, yeah. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, it's like, yeah, that totally makes sense to me. Because mm. they're gonna they're gonna experience those kinds of ambience in those places that they're from, even if only fleetingly. You know, it's like that's what that's I'm thinking as well. Right? Like you're, it's you can get some pretty intense heat and sun at high elevation, mm -hmm. but it's usually not going to be prolonged. Totally. totally right, right, right. And if you missed a lot, there's actually like a lot of like cooling through the evaporation, right? So I have mm -hmm. have these um infrared temperature guns. And the, the wet sphagnum moss is always like at least 10 degrees less. It's always yeah, like really like course. a cool spot. You know? As long as they have somewhere where they can find a refuge from it, it makes sense. Exactly. That's another example where people like kind of have to use like rationale and common sense and like provide mm -hmm. all the different gradients that the animal needs and then just chill and, and relax and, yeah. you know. Trust that the animal will take care of itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So, gentlemen, we are creeping right up on two hours. And yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't mean to be to be that guy, but I'm I'm getting near where I'm gonna have to head out to get up yeah. to the today. Um, I do too. Yeah. But I'd like to. Um, I I still have like one or two questions that I'd like to ask, uh, which includes our closing question before we before we go. Yeah. But I I also would like to say that I my hope would this be this would be like a round one. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'd love to have another chapter of this of this conversation so that way we don't um we don't call this like the end of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, totally. It's always so interesting. We've we've had so many good guests and it's always uh always interesting to me the uh the way that's you know, you never know what to expect out of certain guests. And and this has been a like really, really interesting conversation. So as long as it's cool with, with you, Jonas, I'd love to yeah, start. Okay, so no, the thing is, the thing is, though, I realized like I I, I talked and talked and talked, and I'm no, kind of no. sore right now, to be honest. So, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's yeah. okay. Yeah, it's totally yeah. okay. It's good. It's it's a good thing. I'd rather you, yeah, just get out whatever you want to get out. Um, mm -hmm. but so so I guess the the two questions that I'd like to close with the first the one of them is obviously the closer, but one one mm -hmm. it's like what what does the future look like for you? Like, what do you think some of your, your goals are and what you're looking towards over the next 10 years? Like, do you have any sense mm -hmm. of, of what's next for you or, or what you're looking to do? Um, or is that sort of up in the air? Interesting. It's kind of up in the air. And uh, right now at the moment, I'm really restricted with space, right? I, I thought yeah. about a third species of abronia, but I, I can't do it. Like my balcony is always so big and uh, it's only so big, right? I, I can't put another mm -hmm. cage there. Um, I'm really at capacity right now. And um, in the wintertime, they're actually in my bedroom. So I sleep with an open window so they get the cooling, yeah. right? So yeah. So yeah. Anyway, so I, I, I can't get any any more animals in that sense. But if I do move uh, to a to a bigger apartment eventually, then um, yeah, maybe a third third species of uh, abronia. And um, <clears throat> let's see what the future holds with like the new pairings that I put together. So this is the first year that I actually paired up like completely new pairings like um i always had like my reliable breeding pair um but now i have a couple whole bags and again um 
unrelated animals from other breeders. So um, I'm really hoping to to establish a Bronia mixed tackle and like this um, calico lithrochila in in the hobby and um, see maybe see what I can do in terms of like a little bit of color selection. Like uh, mm-hmm. I think my mixed tackle, I could, you could consider them high yellow because I haven't seen many mixed tackle that are that yellow. And maybe down the line, if you kind of select for color, like I don't think it's unethical. I think it's something that you could actually consider um, to have like, a, you know, a line where you kind of go for a certain trade because yeah. that's how it started with leopard geckos, right? You have mm-hmm. you have a species that uh, displays a certain kind of var- variability. And then you kind of like see what you can Refine do with it. that. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. That's the word. Yeah. So um, I kind of want to go there, um, and, and cool. hopefully, 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 keep doing this, and maybe, maybe add a new species. Like uh, Phil, you you have the uh, Igernia hosmeri. Uh, I really want to keep those at some point. I don't know. They remind me of a Baronia in some way, and uh, I really want to keep uh, the Igernia hosmeri at some point. They're but really cool. They're really weird. <laughs> They're totally weird. They're funny. I call them hogs. I just call them hogs because to me they they're like little pigs, but they're they're great. I love those things. Very weird yeah. little lizards. Weird lizards. Pine cones, like little piggy. <laughs> What's the ratio with um insect feeding and vegetable feeding? What's the uh, ratio I, there? I keep it pretty minimal. I keep them like 70-30 greens and okay. veggies to to insects, but I'm not okay. I'm by no means uh an expert i've never bred them i don't i've only been keeping them alive at this point they seem seem pretty strong pretty bulletproof kind of kind of lizards really not hard to care for so they're just i think they're just rare they're just not that common that's all but they're great yeah they're really cool it'll be good for you to get some whenever you do um yeah 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 but right now really space is the thing that um i i need to get first because before i consider them and what else yeah just see what the future holds right like um i'm pretty content with what i keep right now and how things are going so yeah Yeah, i don't plan to like crazily expand anymore so at least at least not in the near future so sure yeah Yeah. space is always a premium that's for sure yeah right right um well so uh, so with all of that in mind, um, you know, I'm, I, I don't know if you, I, I don't know how much you listen to the show in general, but we have this, this one closer question that we always ask everybody. And so, um, I'm going to, uh, pose that to you now. Uh, and that question is why herpetoculture? And that, that's like why that can be, you can take that as broadly or as, as, as succinctly as you like, you know, whether that's why for you or why do we as humans do this? Like, what do you think about, about this? I mean, of course, I, I listen to, I think, every episode now or like, of course, there's like episodes. I'm, I'm not a big snake guy, right? So I don't, um, mm-hmm. the, the, the snake episodes I have been playing in the bag a little bit, but there's like mm-hmm. been so many interesting guests on that I could draw so much knowledge from. And uh, of course, I thought about this. And then and that was one of the things that I really found interesting uh, that you actually try to explore that. Like, mm. why are we keeping reptiles or why are we so passionate about something that um, other people don't even understand, you know? Like, yeah. why is that? Like, because we cannot cannot imagine a life without it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and other people don't even know that exists, you know? So that's kind of weird. So um, so um, I thought about this and... Um, um, 
I came up with, with with different answers to be honest. Like, uh, this will be a long-winded answer, but um, yeah, I, let me let me take you on a little journey first. Like, um, how mammals and reptiles are depicted, right? So, <laughs> think of like a lone wolf, uh, just strolling through a forest that's covered in snow, right? Now think of a horse that's running on on meadows, right? Just running around free. Mm-hmm. Two mammals in their natural habitat, right? Mm-hmm. So what is what does that image portray? I think most people would associate it with um independence, grace, mm-hmm. freedom, right? When they see two mammals in their natural habitat. Now, think of this. Um it's usually like a like a rainforest setting or a desert. And um you hear a bird call in the distance, right? Some some strange mm-hmm. bird is calling. And then you see a reptile. Like it could be a snake or a lizard or a chameleon crawling on the ground and flicking its tongue and looking at you, right? And then once it's realizing you're there, then it crawls back into the vegetation. That gives a, a completely different image than a mammal. And I thought about like, why is that? You know, like when you see that, you're like, ooh. We out here in the wild, you know, like that's the start of a movie when the, the uh, director wants to wants to tell you like, oh, this is this is the wild, you know, There's yeah, red time, yeah. you know. Yeah. So um, I thought about like what that image actually actually um, um, tells us. I think it's like reptiles have for me, at least when I think about this, they represent a greater sense of connection with the natural elements, because think about it. This lizard depends on the rock or the branch being warm enough from the sun to actually live. Like a mm-hmm. mammal doesn't have to think about that, right? And um, a lot of lizards are, they, they boast like this great level of camouflage, right? So they actually blend in with their environment a lot more. <laughs> so I think reptiles in general represent a very great degree of connectedness with the natural elements. And um, I think some people are more drawn to that than um, I don't know, mammals with like a social structure that you can cuddle or whatever, or, you know? So um, I think some people just have that thing where they are more drawn to something mysterious and, um, or something that's like, um, seems very natural. I don't know. I don't know exactly how to explain, but it's like a, this weird mystery thing that's, that cannot be fully explained. And obviously herpetoculture as a whole can teach you so much. Right. Like, mm. as I briefly explained, like, um, it gives you like an idea of like how to manage a project. If you think about it, if you, if you, um, keep animals, you sort of like a, like a mini farmer in a way, right? You have to manage your stock of animals, right? You have to take care of them, but you also have to take care of the plants that you feed them, the insects that you feed them. It's like a little farm in a way. Yeah, right? of course. You're constantly managing these little projects or whether it's a breeding project or something like that. So it can give you that skill. For me, at least, I was not good with like um, craftsmanship and tools and stuff. Only when I started to build my own tanks, like uh, build my own mm-hmm. terrariums, I started to get involved with that. So I learned that skill through the hobby that otherwise I probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have learned as quick or I'm still not good at it, but I, it's decent now. I had no idea how to use a jigsaw or whatever. And then until I had to build a tank actually. Um, so 
in a nutshell, it's like, um, I don't, I can't think of any other hobby that's as complex, you know? Yeah. So there are so many aspects within it. Like no, nobody that keeps cats or guinea pigs has to read like, um, uh, a scientific paper about their nutrition because like, it's just kind of basic. I mean, some people do probably, but what uh, cat owners and guinea pig owners don't have to do is be concerned with UV lights. We yeah. have to, right? Yeah. We have to know the different wavelengths and, oh, this is warm light and this is UV light and this is visible light. And um, we have to, the, the hobby is so much more complex than others. So I cannot think of any other hobby that's as deep and complex. And I think certain people with their personality traits are just drawn to this complexity, right? That's yeah. Why, that's that's, yeah, that's that, why I'm in it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great answer, man. Yeah. And it, it's like a standardization is what it feels like to me. It's like so many of those uh, those other ho uh, hobbyists, so much of the work is just it's been done already. It's like, what do you, yeah. uh, like, what, do you, exactly. what, do you what do you feed your cats? It's like, well, you, we know we know what you need to feed. Yeah. Your cats. It's like it's, there's a range. It's not like we know you give them this one exact thing. That's why there's lots of different formulations but there's like a base idea of what you need to get a cat to live and do its thing but we don't have that in herpeticulture as of yet um that's a great answer man so where yeah. where can people find you on on like the internets <laughs> the internets um so i'm not super active on social media i have an instagram account it's called uh jungle jones so that's jungle j-o-n-z um so people yeah feel free to follow me there but it's like a personal account right i post like um uh, whenever i have a nice coffee or when i do a workout or it's sometimes i might post a cool lizard but um yeah don't 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 expect only that but um yeah people yeah. can follow me there and um yeah that's it oh that's awesome. amazing great yeah this Wonderful. has been an awesome conversation thank you Jonas. i yeah, um i really enjoyed it and yeah, we'll definitely have to have you back at some point to discuss more of the kind of like philosophy side of herbal culture because I know that's something we want to talk about. We didn't have time for today, but we'll get there. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. it would be a pleasure. And it was really nice talking to you, man. Like, yeah, ditto. Yeah. You know, enjoyed yeah. it. I thought we got into some of that stuff like kind of early on. A little on bit. And... Yeah, yeah. We definitely, it, it, we, we got into it, but you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, like, there's, I, I think, I feel like I could talk about this for hours and hours. Like, as I as I told you, like, my 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 uh, throat is kind of sore now. I'm I'm operating yeah. on four hours of sleep. I had a long day, but um, <laughs> yeah, honestly, yeah. But um, but still, like, uh, there's there's so many topics to discuss in this thing. So um, yeah, it would be cool to do it again, man. And yeah, it was great to be on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it, man. Um, yeah, same to you guys. Bro, you want to hit right. that? Yeah, I'm going to hit it.